This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What did a Mississippi sharecropper teach us about freedom? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. We hear the term freedom bandied about rather loosely in this country. It's one of those things people say they love. But are we really free? In many instances, freedom feels more like America's consumer brand than one of its core principles, mostly because we see those principles violated with regularity. Fannie Lou Hamer is someone who understood this all too well. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with Dr. Keisha Blaine. Blaine is a historian and the author of the new Hamer biography, Until I Am Free. In the book, which is part contemporary social commentary, Blaine describes how Hamer was accustomed to seeing the same rights and freedoms technically guaranteed to her as an American discarded because she was a black woman. Hamer was fired from her job as a sharecropper for trying to register to vote. She was still denied that ability even after she passed a discriminatory literacy test. And later, after attempting to register some of her fellow Mississippians, she was beaten by police and left with a limp, a blood clot behind her eye, and permanent kidney damage. With those injuries, from a stage at the 1964 Democratic National Convention in what became a landmark speech, Fannie Lou Hamer spoke plainly about those experiences. When the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. All of this is the on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. Hamer, who had served as a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, co-founded the Freedom Democratic Party in order to spotlight the denial of the very freedoms that were, and still are, supposed to be guaranteed to African Americans. Hamer urged those people listening to understand that denying her rights was, in fact, a refutation of American ideals. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily 
because we want to live as decent human beings in America. This speech was Hamer's introduction to the American mainstream, including to President Johnson, who said he couldn't sleep, his words, knowing what Hamer might say at the podium. But how did she end up there in the first place? This is what I wanted to ask Dr. Keisha Blank. How did a black woman in her 40s, during Jim Crow, with little formal education, without the kind of pedigree a lot of civil rights leaders had, how did she end up giving a speech people still talk about today? Where exactly did Fannie Lou Hamer come from? And why has that remained important in today's America? Fannie Lou Hamer was a sharecropper. She was born into a sharecropping family. And as you point out, she did not have much formal education. Uh, She had a sixth grade education. In fact, according to Hamer, it's not until August 1962 that she even learned of the fact that she had a constitutional right to vote as a Mm. citizen of the United States. And she also joined the movement fairly late in life. She was 44 years old when she joined, uh, compared to many of the activists with whom she collaborated, who were much younger, many of them even uh, college students at the time. And Hamer did not have the, the experience as a political organizer at the time that she joined. So quite frankly, this is an, you know, an ordinary Black woman. She was a disabled activist, walked with a limp, and she joined uh, and immediately became a force, immediately learned as much as she could learn, and then took that information to others. One of the most striking things about Hamer is that when she learned about, you know, her constitutional rights to vote as a citizen of the United States, she simply wanted to talk about it all the time. She wanted people to know. She would always talk about the Reconstruction Amendment. She would point to the fact that it was somewhat surreal that Black people were fighting in Mississippi in the 1960s for rights that had already been granted to them since the 19th century. And so despite the limited formal education, once she learned uh, about the power of the vote, she pushed that message in every, every instance. Yeah, fighting for rights that we supposedly have already been granted. I feel like it's right. the kind of the story of black folks in America, particularly after enslavement. You know, in that light, I wanted to make sure that our audience understands what sharecropping is and, you know, frankly, why that's important to how, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer developed into, well, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes, this is a system that developed in the aftermath of slavery. And in fact, it's important to emphasize that it was designed by white landowners. The idea was that Black people following emancipation would be able to continue working on the plantations. In fact, many people remained on the very same plantations, uh, you know, on which their families had been uh, under the institution of slavery. With the sharecropping system, one would continue to grow the crops, but not own anything and would only receive a share of the crops at the end of the season. And so this was a system of exploitation. It was a system that ultimately meant to keep Black people in debt and certainly uh, dependency. And Fannie Lou Hamer's family uh, was among so many other families, not only in Mississippi, but across the U.S. South, working in this exploitative system. How did her tactics and strategies differ from those of other civil rights leaders at the time? 
I'm curious to know more specifically about the Freedom Farm Collective, which I didn't really know a whole lot about before I read your book. Wow. This is such a powerful example of how Fannie Lou Hamer tried to make Mississippi better, how she tried to make the nation better. Despite the fact that she had limited material resources, she devised, I mean, this powerful idea of opening up a farm, and this was in the late 1960s, uh, Freedom Farm, which would provide a space for people to grow their own crops. It's important to point out that, you know, Hamer allowed anyone to be a part of Freedom Farm. It, it did not matter your your race, your ethnicity. All she cared about was if you had a need, if you were living in poverty and you could benefit from Freedom Farm, then the doors were open to you. You could come, you know, your family could be there. It was a space uh, that provided housing, educational opportunities, even uh, job opportunities. And more importantly, it was a place where you could grow your own crops. You know, there was a pig bank in Freedom Farm, which allowed people... Okay, for those of us uneducated in that regard, <laughs> what is a pig bank? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, and I was going to say, a different image came to my mind. <laughs> oh, right, right. Right. Well, the idea was that as part of the Freedom Farm, people paid a, a very small fee. And you could essentially make sure that you had the means to, you know, feed your family. So you could contribute to the pig bank. So initially what she did was she had, you know, several people actually donate the pigs. And the idea was to to rear the pigs and, and to work towards multiplying the pigs so that families on the farm uh, could could actually have food to eat. And so this was definitely, you know, a grassroots community-based economic program that was certainly supported widely. You know, many activists supported Hamer and she traveled across the country to raise funds for Freedom Farm. But this was, quite frankly, a, you know, a genius kind of approach to addressing poverty and hunger in Mississippi. And it also had, I think, a broad reach beyond the region because one of the things that Hamer would do is, you know, for families that had left Mississippi Delta and had traveled to northern cities, uh, she would also send crops and, and so on. She would send food, actually ship food out to various cities. So this was one way that she tried to tackle poverty despite the fact that she did not have much. Mm -hmm. She definitely seemed to view the struggle of Black people here as part of a gl more global struggle. I know you wrote later in the book that, you know, like many black internationalists before and after her, Hamer refused to divorce developments taking place in the United States from global movements abroad. How does she integrate her thinking and her action uh, with others who are working for justice abroad? So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that Hamer takes a trip towards the end of September of 1964 to the African continent. She travels specifically to Guinea and this was, you know, as I argue, a transformative moment for her. It was a moment where she began to really understand that the, the challenges that Black people were facing in the United States could not be divorced from the challenges that Black people were enduring in other parts of the globe, and even more broadly, uh, that people of color, you know, other marginalized groups were facing globally. I think when Hamer returned to the United States after that trip, she just started making those connections. And you could see it uh, in her speeches. So, for example, she would condemn, you know, white supremacy in Mississippi. 
And then she would draw a connection to the Congo. She would talk about white imperialism, right? She would talk about colonialism. She would talk about the way that all of these other countries were trying to limit, you know, Black people's autonomy. And even though she recognized that, you know, Mississippi was not the Congo, she saw the connections. And in doing so, she saw the importance of forming solidarities. Uh, She saw the importance of these transnational networks. And she was really, I think, open to collaborating with, with all kinds of people as long as they were committed to the cause. And there's a moment in her life where she just openly says, listen, I'm no longer really fighting for civil rights. I'm fighting for human rights. Mm. And honestly, that brings me to, you know, the quote that seems to have inspired your book title, which is, of course, we have a long fight and this fight is not mine alone, she said. But you are not free whether you are white or black until I am free. And that, I mean, you know, not just encapsulates, I think, the universality of justice and accountability here in the States, but of course abroad. Did this land with people immediately or did it take some time to seep in? I think it truly impacted people in a meaningful way because part of what was happening, and this is true, I would argue, even today, quite frankly, Hmm. we are often talking about our lives as somewhat disconnected, right? So we we talk about, you know, our experiences, and this is true whenever we talk about racism as an example. I'm always struck by conversations about racism quickly turn into these personal narratives and that someone will say, well, I haven't experienced that or, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't believe it because, you know, no police officer has ever stopped me and asked me those questions. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what Hamer, I think, did is she said, listen, it's not just about you. We have to think in the collective, right? We are all members of the American polity. That means that if someone is hurting, it does affect you. If someone is in chains, you are not free, even if you think you are, right? Because we may come from different backgrounds, you know, different socioeconomic status, or different races, ethnicities, and so on. Uh, but because we are all in this nation, we are connected. And the future of the nation depends on all of us. And so she would emphasize that regardless of who you were, you have to be concerned about the person next to you. And it also struck me as a, I don't want to misuse the word intersectionality, but, you know, it struck me as a a message that understood that concept before it was even ever articulated. You know, one that said, okay, the struggle for equity as black people, is about more than race. It's about mm-hmm. more than this social construct. As you continue to learn more and more about her life, how did you understand her ability to grasp how oppression from different angles all works together? Well, one of the things that stood out to me very early in the process of writing the book was that Hamer I think she can be described as, you know, one of the foremothers of intersectionality. And and what do I mean? We certainly talk about intersectionality today through the lens of the, the brilliant legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw. What we do see in Hamer's words are essentially the vision of intersectionality, because what she was saying was we can't talk about sexism, for example, in isolation. We have to think about the intersecting 
dimensions, the intersecting forms of oppression. And she brought this to the fore when she spoke to uh, white liberal feminists in particular. She would say, we can talk about sexism, we can talk about patriarchy, that's important, but don't overlook racism and white supremacy and don't overlook classism. Like, let's talk about all of the ways that people are being oppressed in this country. Uh, and so we certainly see that genealogy, and ironically, as I explained in the book, it is a genealogy that is very much an expression of Black feminist thought, even though Hamer herself would not have accepted the label feminist, she ended up contributing so powerfully to the movement. I, I was so fascinated to learn that. Why was that the case? Why was she unwilling to embrace that label, especially, you know, when it can be oriented around the kind of concerns that she was speaking about? Well, I think there are several factors. Uh, one is that Hamer did not see the interests of Black women being centered in the women's liberation movement at the time. Uh, she saw all of these activists talking about patriarchy, talking about the importance of empowering women. And she certainly embraced these ideals. But for her, the label feminist did not really reflect, you know, what she saw as, I'll put it to you this way, Hamer believed that many of the individuals who call themselves feminists were not deeply invested and bringing an end to racism and white supremacy, that many of the mm. individuals who wanted to talk about women's empowerment wanted to do so without ever really touching, you know, the sensitive topic of race. And Hamer's argument is that's simply impossible. You can't divorce the two. You have to talk about racism. How could you not? And you have to talk about class, right? How could you not? <laughs> uh, and so for her, resisting the term was her way of really, I think, asserting her authority and saying, listen, I'm not going to take and accept a label that doesn't represent me. But far beyond the label, her words and her deeds reflected how much she was committed to women's empowerment. And not surprisingly, she ended up playing an instrumental role in the feminist movement, you know, her efforts in 1971 to help launch uh, the National Women's Political Caucus, which is such an important organization for providing uh, all kinds of support and opportunities for women to run for public office. And Hamer was fully invested uh, in that group. And uh, she worked so hard to ensure that Black women in particular, you know, other women of color would have an opportunity to run for office, always tried to support them in those efforts. And, and so her deeds reflected how much she was committed to women's empowerment, even though she resisted a label. Fannie Lou Hamer knew all too well how women's basic rights could be violated by the very people entrusted with their care, people like doctors. After a short break, Keisha Blaine will tell us Hamer's story of entering a hospital for a routine, benign operation and instead receiving something else entirely. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Hamer herself, of course, had many of her own rights as a woman abrogated. You know, this term, you know, I'm sure you've heard Mississippi appendectomy, mm-hmm. you know, where women essentially are go in and are sterilized without their consent or knowledge beforehand. What happened to her? Can you describe Mm -hmm. what happened to her? In 1961, one year before Hamer joined the movement, she was hospitalized. She had a small uterine tumor, and this was a non-cancerous tumor. She went into the hospital, and the doctor, the white doctor who performed the surgery unbeknownst to Hamer, removed her uterus. To add insult to injury, he didn't say anything. Immediately, Hamer did not know exactly what had happened. And she learned about the forced sterilization actually through the Whisper Network. She came back to the plantation. Huh. I know it's, it's quite appalling. She came back to the plantation where she you know, was working as a sharecropper. And the doctor was related to someone who worked on the plantation, had shared this information, and people were talking about it. And Hamer found out about it through gossip and was stunned. She confronted the doctor, and as one can imagine, she was so angry, demanded an answer from him. He did not provide an answer. And as Hamer explained, he didn't have to. Because this was a Jim Crow South, and and more to the point that this was a practice that was quite common, as troubling as that sounds, it was quite common, particularly for Black women, for impoverished women living in the South, but not exclusively so. This was a practice that had taken place in various parts of the nation, but it was just an example of the brutality of the violence that Black women endured in this period. And Hamer decided that she would seek justice. And the way to do so, because she had few options before her, was to simply speak out about it, tell her story. And so she told her story over and over again. She shared the painful experience to diverse audiences in order to shed the light on this terrible practice. What effect did her activism have on 
laws that were actually passed? What effect did she have mm-hmm. on political leaders specifically? How did she push them to actually take action? Well, Hamer really uh, laid the groundwork for the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's one key example. You know, we've mentioned the 1964 Democratic National Convention. If you ask anyone about that convention, anyone who was there in person or even anyone who might have heard the coverage even afterward, just about everyone you ask will tell you they remember one thing. And what they remember is that powerful testimony from Fannie Lou Hamer. Mr. Chairman and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. Uh, In fact, in the process of doing research, so many individuals would say things like, I don't even remember who else spoke, you know, at that convention, (laughs) which is, you know, I always chuckle when I read that. But it's so true because... You know, this one Black woman, sharecropper, just electrified the place. And that's not a small thing because Hamer terrified people. And she she terrified the president of the United States, right? Yeah, I wanted to talk about, like, she had LBJ shook. Absolutely. Uh, Can you you just remind people exactly how President Lyndon Baines Johnson reacted to her address at the 64 convention. So he decided to hold an impromptu press conference just to (laughs) force people from actually not hearing this powerful black woman who was speaking truth to power. We'll return to this scene in Atlantic City, but now we switch to the White House and NBC's Robert Goralski. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Thank you very much. I mean, it was just too raw. It was too difficult. And he knew that it was going to make a difference, but he could not change fate. I mean, in the end, those who who heard it live were moved. And those who heard it later, after it was, you know, aired on national TV, they could not stop thinking about it. And it really touched them to the core because it was clear just the the pain, uh, but also uh, just the honesty of what Black people were facing in the United States. I think anyone who had any interest in social justice, anyone who say that they care about the next person could not turn away. And they had to be part of an effort to ensure that Black people would have political rights, as I said, you know, earlier, rights that technically (laughs) they already had. But now, you know, the Voting Rights Act was a way to enforce and ensure that people would have access to the ballot box. Yeah, you say she set the stage for that. So LBJ, at the end of the day, did have to reckon with what she was actually saying. Exactly. How did she and, you know, I guess that White House interact, if at all? Well, I think um, initially it, it certainly went from this attitude of tension, one might say, between Hamer and LBJ. But I think just about every single person who encountered Hamer, even if, you know, she initially made them uncomfortable, they came to realize the significance of her voice. They came to respect her, quite frankly. I think that is true for him as well. I mean, he 
came to recognize that this was someone who could not be stopped. <laughs> he, he had tried and <laughs> failed, so he he knew that. But also, this is someone whose voice was powerful and and who people listened to and trusted. And if he was going to hope to have any meaningful impact, he needed to take her concerns seriously. And so I think one can see the evolution, you know, of the relationship between the two. Uh, and and I, I would argue this is true for many of the people with whom Hamer clashed, you know, at the 64 convention. You know, some people were pretty turned off by her firm stance. She just did not want to compromise, but in the end, just respected her for it. That's always puzzled me, how people feel like we need to present demands for racial equity, demands for, as we mentioned before, rights that we already are guaranteed by the United States Constitution, amendments or laws, how we're supposed to be moderate in those demands and expect, frankly, anything to actually get done. I mean, how did she react to those calls for moderation? Well, she resisted those calls. And to be clear, one of the things that, you know, I I really appreciate about Hamer, when people would push this notion of gradualism, and people are still doing it today, you know, there are people who today will say, listen, yes, we need change, but don't push too hard. Don't push too fast. You're going to scare people away. People have said this for decades. In every (laughs) moment of U.S. history, there's always someone saying, you know, go slow, go slow. But Hamer would, would respond, pay attention, folks. And she would say, listen, the demands that we're making now in the 1960s are not new demands. We're making demands that go back decades Right. And so she would say and there was one point where, you know, someone challenged her you know, and is saying, again, this notion of gradualism, you know, take it slow and, and kind of work your way through. She said, I'm tired of waiting. We've been gradual for hundreds of years. Right. Like if you right. look at the long arc of U.S. history, these demands are not new. Black people have been demanding full political access for as long as they have been, right, on on what is now the United States. I mean, even before 1776. So it's sort of, I chuckle about it because people always frame the demand as new every time it comes up. Right. But it's not new. Yeah. um, Acting like the demand is new or unnecessary. Right. That's the thing that really kills me because it's like they feel like this incremental progress, this gradualism has been enough has been something that we should be satisfied with. And each generation Mm -hmm. is told to be satisfied by a certain level of incrementalism. Right. Uh, You know, okay, you know, you got a little bit more here. Boom. Okay, here's a few more crumbs. Boom. Instead of actually just handing us over the whole meal that we've been not only demanding, but have been guaranteed as American citizens. And it reminds me of that Toni Morrison quote about racism and, and its purpose being primarily to distract us. I mean, I I, kind of want to know in that light, what kind of personal toll did this activism take on Hamer? Oh, it it took, I think, certainly a physical, emotional toll. You know, one of the things that I would emphasize, though, is Hamer truly believed that all of the work that she was doing was divinely ordained. This is key. Uh, So Hamer was a woman of faith. And this is really important when we think about her political activism. What that meant for her is that she didn't 
answer unnecessarily to people. She certainly cared about people and listened carefully to the needs of people. That's why she was fighting. But more to the point, she believed firmly that she answered to a higher power and she answered to God. That meant that she really needed to keep pushing and fighting no matter what. She believed that God was on her side. Uh, She certainly knew that what she was doing was very dangerous. She could lose her life um, at any moment. And in fact, there were so many attempts on her life. So this was something she grappled with daily. But I think she had a sense that, you know, she was placed on this earth to help shine light into a world of darkness and specifically to shine light into the sins that she would describe, you know, the sins of racism and white supremacy. Because of that, she pushed, I think, to always turn painful experiences into political action. Not an easy thing to do. And and to be clear, you know, there were moments where she had to pause, but she always tried to figure out how to take the experience and propel her work forward. In terms of the physical toll, you know, Hamer did not really take too much care of herself. The irony is that she mm-hmm. was so selfless that she pushed aside a number of health concerns. She had diabetes. It was unregulated. She was not bringing attention to it. She just kept pushing even when toward the end of her life, she, uh, you know, had breast cancer. So many people said to her, take some time, get some rest. She didn't really listen. She was still traveling. You know, she was still going. As long as she had the breath in her body, her approach was, I'm just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But it took a toll. You know, at one point she was in a picket line and just fainted, right? Because Mm -hmm. she was not paying attention to all of the health concerns because she was so concerned about everyone else, it seemed far more than herself. So even her story, I think, in that sense, is a cautionary tale about, you know, the dangers. I mean, certainly we have to be committed to the cause of liberation, but we do have to think about self-care too. And yeah, I think that's an important way to think about her legacy. But also, I mean, I think about the reporting we've seen of late from, you know, organizations like ProPublica about, frankly, you know, the wide discrepancies in medical care, mm-hmm. uh, particularly as they affect black women and black pregnant women, to be more specific. How do you see Hamer playing a role in people understanding the seriousness of that medical racism? Many of these conversations we've certainly been grappling with over the last year in particular, as we talk about COVID-19 and we look at disparities in, in health care and quality access to health care in this country, I, I mean, Hamer walked into a hospital, a place where she should have been treated with care, a place where she should have received help from someone who made an oath, right? Someone who vowed to help people, not harm them. And yet... She was harmed and she was not the only one. And this is a practice that I think sheds light not only on the individual act, because this is the other thing, too. We we often can talk about individual racism in the sense that many people understand uh, when we say, well, this person might have used an inappropriate word or this person did something to someone else. And we we grasp those moments. But here's an example of systemic racism. Here's an example of how an entire system 
ultimately facilitates racial inequality and one that we have seen time and time again. I think about Hamer with a lot of other leaders in this regard, that we find ourselves looking back at them. And what I think about this with John Lewis, all the pain that they suffered on our behalf, all the inconveniences, all the injuries, all the everything. And it just pains me that, that we have to see people go through so much hardship in order to get to the point where we eventually lionize them. And as you, you know, tackle this biography, were you ever thinking about how and why we end up choosing the leaders that we do? And especially within the civil rights paradigm, I mean, I feel like people become more prominent when they suffer at the hands of police or other authority figures. They suffer some kind of physical injustice. You mentioned earlier she walks with a limp mm-hmm. <laughs> at the convention. There's a reason for that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's hard because when I teach courses on the civil rights movement, sometimes I will have students who say to me, listen, we can talk about the law, we can talk about uh, the Constitution, but in the end, what's the point? You know, electoral politics, it has all these limitations, and I certainly understand why there can be skepticism and resistance. But I also say to them, let's talk about someone like Fannie Lou Hamer and what it meant to have to endure beatings, uh, sexual assault, simply to exercise the right to vote. And clearly, we are still dealing with voter suppression. Uh, So I I don't want to give the impression that, you know, the fight is over. Great, we've made it. But I say to students, if you have the means, you know, if you have access to cast a ballot, you have to. And you have to do so if you're going to honor the memory, the legacy of someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, certainly someone like John Lewis, who you uh, mentioned. And and so as much as I think it's unfortunate that we find ourselves having, you know, to emphasize the pain, the violence, the, the trauma that those before us endured, I do think that it should, certainly I hope, that when people hear these stories, they are emboldened um, to mm-hmm. to keep the fight going, right? Because we're still dealing with acts of violence uh, today. We're still dealing with, with attempts to restrict people from the ballot box and so on. But of course, there are a lot of things that we can do today that Hamer could not do in her lifetime. So part of it is recognizing the opportunities before us, you know, honoring those who have worked and laid the groundwork and and then carrying their vision forward to the best of our ability. Uh, you know, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it it does. And one of the other things I wanted to address was we think about the leaders that we spill all this adulation for, particularly after they're gone. And I wonder sometimes, though, if we get a little too caught up in doing that, because I don't know necessarily how thinking about Fannie Lou Hamer's and John Lewis's and all these folks who have passed on mm-hmm. um, as these kind of avatars of, you know, perfect leadership really helps mm-hmm. us get closer to the truth and reconciliation that we need. I'm just kind of interested to know during your research, how did you come to maybe change your thinking a little bit about leadership? 
Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about Hamer's story is that it shows us what is possible when we focus on grassroots leaders. And what do I mean? You know, Hamer was someone who I think many people, certainly many people who met her in, in 1962 or even earlier, might not have immediately imagined as someone who would become a national leader in the movement. Because she was so different in terms of her background, her education, her her access and networks, very different. But what is powerful about her story is the possibilities of leadership when those who do have the networks and the access come into communities and not simply show up and say, okay, I have all the right answers, so I'm here to tell you what to do. But they come into communities and they decide, okay, I'm going to bring those resources and I want to work with you. Uh, You let me know what you need. And more to the point, how can I mentor? How can I support? How can I make sure that I'm helping to nurture leaders in the community and remove myself right from the space and and the place and, and not dominate. And and I think that to me is so powerful. You know, as you pointed out earlier, we do have a tendency to always look for the one or two leaders. We see this historically, you know, well, that's the person or these two or these three individuals. But as I often say to my students, maybe the leader you're looking for, right, is, is the person you're staring at in the mirror. Because in the end, uh, we all have something to contribute. We all have certain skills and abilities, right? Of, of course, we're not all the same, but we all have certain skills and abilities that we can put to use uh, in the larger struggle for social justice. And I think Hamer's story shows us what's possible when we invest in people, when we listen to people, when we let local people decide what's best for them and we don't assume that we have all the answers because we're the ones, you know, being interviewed, you know, on national TV, just because you have the cameras in front of you doesn't mean you're really the leader, right? So Mm -hmm. I just think these are the kinds of lessons that I certainly learned from Hamer's story that I hope we can carry to the present. And I am encouraged because I do see elements of this uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, there is still always an impulse to to sort of push one or two individuals. But I think, you know, the movement broadly has allowed various kinds of spaces for local leaders to emerge. I am intrigued by how modern civil rights leadership seems to be, I don't think co-opted is the right word, but I do think that like they're more willing to work within systems, um, mm-hmm. that presumably they are trying to disrupt or destroy in order to increase representation. These folks are being put on diversity and inclusion departments within the, mm-hmm. those companies. They are being you know, asked to be put on boards. They're making deals for media. I don't think any of that's necessarily the wrong approach. I think that we need to certainly see how that plays out. But I'm intrigued by Hamer reading your book and learning more about her because she comes from so far outside of that normal sort of civil rights leadership paradigm. And I wonder if that can help, you know, modern activists, you know, who are seeking to actually really disrupt things. And I wonder if that can help them as an example to say, hey, you know, it's probably best to stay outside of the system and Mm – disrupt it from that standpoint and, you know, and stay, like you said, in the grassroots? You know, I think you're really getting to the heart of 
what I think can best be described as two approaches that we're often battling with, uh, and we see this in so many different social movements. It's one, the vision of reform, uh, which is to adjust, to tweak, and the vision of revolution, which is to simply overturn. So I say to people, do you want to shake the table or do you want to flip over the table? Many people will say they want to flip over the table, but they really just want to shake the table because they intend to be on the table, right? They want to stay at the table and they recognize that flipping over the table disrupts things too much. And then perhaps it may remove them from a space that, you know, they value because they have some sort of voice. So I have learned, I think, uh, and this is true, I, especially as an academic, you know, I've learned this the hard way of being in, in these spaces where you begin having a conversation with someone about overturning a system. And then very quickly you realize, oh, this person wants to tweak but they don't want to really disrupt because they're invested in this, right? Well, it, it, I mean, just to be fair, I mean, tweaking can work sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> and, and we don't necessarily – no, but it, I do worry that, that it plays into the incrementalism too much. And I think, you know, obviously I think it's advantageous to have people both inside and outside. You need, you know, as many hands on deck as you possibly can. But with Hamer's example, I think if people read this book, they should be thinking, okay, I need to pay a little bit more attention to maybe some activists I haven't heard of. Right. You know, right. people who I don't follow on Twitter, people who I don't see interviewed on cable news. You know, not to say that those folks aren't making a difference because they clearly are. But the point is there are folks who you have never, ever heard of or would think would be a part of this conversation, this economy of ideas. And we need to be hearing them as well. Absolutely. And, and what I find is that even when those individuals speak, I give an example. It's a controversial example. It doesn't have to be controversial, but unfortunately, here we are, where over the last few months, you know, certainly last spring, last summer, so many activists were in the street and they started chanting defund the police. Now, clearly, I, I hope that by now people understand that the the phrase that it has deep meaning right and it comes out of you know a longer history and genealogy of black thought and activism in fact so yeah. it, that I, in I, of itself is a new <laughs> i'll be a little bit harsher I, I think people don't understand what defund the police means at this right. point right they are being willfully ignorant <laughs> They are not curious. They are not thinking critically enough because the definition has been explained, again, to Toni Morrison's point, to the point of distraction. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, what I think one of the most disturbing, I, I think, responses, certainly disturbing to me, you know, it's one thing for people to criticize and, and say, listen, you know, we, we don't want to hear this for whatever reason. We completely reject this notion. We don't even want to fully understand it, as you point out. But it was troubling to watch leaders, you know, black leaders who, who we know are committed to the struggle, who, who have worked to expand black social rights, black political rights, stand up and denounce those activists, right? And, and part of what was happening, one could say, well, there's a generational difference. But part of what I think was happening was this unfortunate notion that, well, we as the established leaders know what's best and these other folks making all of these radical claims are causing problems. They're not helping. 
I think the better response might have been, okay, I may not necessarily fully embrace this idea, but if people are saying this, maybe it's time to listen, take them seriously, not dismiss their ideas. And, and I think Hamer provided a model for how to do that. She was not a Black nationalist, but she never mm-hmm. condemned Black nationalist activists, just never did. Even when people pushed her, they, she, they would say, oh, why don't you talk about the Black Panther Party? Why don't you talk about violence? She would say, you want to talk about violence? Let's talk about the KKK. Um, because for her, she said, do not critique those who are oppressed. Call out the oppressor. Given Fannie Lou Hamer's very thoughtful and direct approach to movement advocacy in her day, I really want to know, how do her ideas apply to social activism today? I'll ask Dr. Keisha Blaine after one more short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. There are a lot of biographies of folks who, like Hamer who have been in her position that don't necessarily interrogate her legacy within the context of modern social activism. Why did you make this not just, you know, sort of a, 
a review of her life, but also this manifesto of sorts. I wanted this book to be a resource, a tool, not solely for educators. I certainly expect and hope that people will use the book in the classroom setting. But quite frankly, I wanted this to be a tool for activists. One of the reasons that I felt a sense of urgency to finish the book was watching everything that unfolded uh, with the uprisings, I think, uh, in the aftermath, you know, of George Floyd's death, uh, as well as Breonna Taylor and so many others. I just felt so discouraged. I remember thinking, how can we possibly move forward here? It just seems like we're going on in cycles. We, we make one step forward and five steps backwards. And I, and I just thought, okay, I know that Hamer had a vision, a vision of this nation that propelled activists to keep fighting. And, and I, I returned to Hamer and I found inspiration in her words and, and I found crucial strategies being presented that I thought, okay, we can look to Hamer and we can grapple with her ideas to figure out how to move forward. And so this was meant to be, I think, a, a book that would give you a history lesson, certainly, but more mm -hmm. to the point, something that you could read, highlight and say, okay, maybe this is how we could approach this issue in our community or in our nation. I mean, I, I'm really hoping that people take action once they read this book. I'm curious about how your previous work also helped inform your approach to this. And of course, you worked on 400 Souls with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. You did the Trump syllabus and Charleston syllabus. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how those projects help I guess, maybe alter your your view of civil rights leadership. It maybe helped you approach this subject a little bit differently. Well, I think all of these projects are connected in the sense that what I've tried to do in my career has been to allow my work to be of use to a broader public. And, and this is not, you know, a slight to many of my colleagues. There's so many people who write books uh, as historians and other scholars, and they write for scholars. It's just that simple. They write mm -hmm. these books that are meant to illuminate all kinds of things that only scholars care about, you know, quite frankly. But I wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> I, listen, I'm, I'm a child of an academic. I, I understand to right. a certain degree what you mean, but can you elucidate that for, for, for our audience? Why would only scholars care about that particular thing? Well, part of it is scholars spend, and, and this is true particularly for historians, we spend a lot of time debating, you know, what we talk about as historiography. So we spend a lot of time pouring through all of these books and articles that have been written for decades and trying to figure out, okay, what's the argument that I can make that can perhaps challenge this scholar from the past or add another dimension to this other person's thinking? That is certainly meaningful. And of course, I work with graduate students, and so I have to be deeply invested in, in historiography discussions. But what I mean is that I think there is a growing number of scholars, and particularly Black and brown scholars who who recognize that the work that we do cannot simply be confined to the four walls of academia because we want to make a difference in our communities, right? We recognize that 
quite frankly, this is a matter of life and death. I, I can't just sit down and write books all day to grapple with historiography as much as I may want to. I need to write books that will help uplift my community, that will help those around me, and that would help create a, a better nation uh, for my child and for the children of others. What I think can be described as practical scholarship, the kind of scholarship that affects some kind of change, meaningful change that helps improve the lives of other people and isn't just of use for the scholar. I know in my business, you know, certainly there's a lot of folks, including myself, who make a point to distinguish journalism from activism, um, not simply because of you know ethics within our industry, but also, frankly, to not associate ourselves with the real work that people are doing on the ground. You mentioned practical scholarship. Is that the best way you feel like you can do what you do and make that, I guess, most practically relevant or useful for those who are trying to further racial equity? I think so. And I recognize that so many people will not agree with me. You know, I spend a lot of time in spaces with other academics who say things like, you know, we have to produce scholarship that's neutral and we can't really take a position and we just have to present the facts and take this somewhat detached approach. And maybe that works for them. But when I am living as a Black woman in the United States and every single day encountering all kinds of challenges, it's hard for me to uh, simply write anything and not I think, have a response. I, I can't talk about police violence as some abstract thing. How can I? You know, I grew up in a community where I, you know, where I had to witness all kinds of things. So it's more than just, oh, well, here's some data and, you know, here's some interesting facts and move on. No, oftentimes I'm writing about people who I know. I'm writing about communities where I'm familiar, where I grew up, where other people that I know live. And so, there's a real personal aspect to it that propels me to produce scholarship that's useful in that regard. Uh, and I certainly hope that this book, you know, as everything else I've written, will be appreciated uh, along those lines. I think that's a really natural point for us to finish. I could talk to you about this for you know, hours, <laughs> but I do want to value your time. Dr. Keisha Blaine, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation. And I just wish you luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone who you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. 